Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm fucking exhausted. See, I was up all night last night yelling angrily at a map, like I was on a road trip in the mid-90s. So you'll have to excuse me if I'm not exactly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed today. I'd probably characterize my eyes as being a little bit manic, and if I had a tail, it'd be all not on and shit. For context, if you're not listening to this on the day that it comes out, as I record this, it is November 4th, 2020. There was a presidential election last night, the winner of which has yet to be declared. So we're currently on day two of it feeling kind of like a super shitty version of Christmas Eve, only you know you're not going to get any presents you want, and you're just really hoping that Santa doesn't murder your parents. All of which is to say, this is a weird time. Well, first of all, this is a weird time full stop, but... Also, it is a weird time to be recording a podcast about a 40-year-old comic book. But that's what I do, so I'm doing it. Hopefully it can be some kind of a source of comfort for you, kind of like that Canadian drama about a ranch for troubled horses. Yeah, that's right, I'm going to pretend that I don't know the name of the show Heartland. There's like 14 seasons of that shit. In the first episode, the teenage girl saves the horse that murdered her mom. She names it Spartan, because I guess Orphan Maker would take too long to stitch onto a saddle. Anyway, you'd probably just be better off going and watching that show. But since you're here anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is, no, you know what? A synopsis rhyme is a reward for having a functioning society. So, no synopsis rhyme today. Defenders, number 85, July, 1980. Like a proud Black Panther. Written by Ed Hannigan, drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Jim Mooney, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Hellcat. Valkyrie. Clea. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Namor, the Submariner, Nighthawk, a little but not really, and the Black Panther. Previously in the Defenders. Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Namor had just returned from defeating a nigh-omnipotent underpants monster in the high-fantasy, thinly-veiled parable for objectivism nonsense realm of Tunnel World. Their first stop upon arriving back on Earth was Namor's undersea palace in Atlantis. Despite the lavish feast the Atlanteans had thrown in honor of their ruler's homecoming, none of the OG defenders were feeling particularly celebratory. Namor was worried that allowing his warlords free reign to do whatever they wanted to during his absence might not have been the best idea. Hulk was recovering from the after-effects of a sorcerous lobotomy which Steve had performed on him at the end of their last mission. And Steve was a little sleepy. The somnolent sorcerer headed home to his sanctum sanctimonious to take a snooze and was surprised to find that his nap would have to wait as his girlfriend slash disciple, a not-at-all-creepy combination, 
Clea was entertaining guests, namely Valkyrie and Hellcat. Hellcat asked Clea to join the Defenders. Hooray! Then she filled Steven on what he had missed while he was off mixing it up with the underpants monster. Basically, she and Val had fought a foolish killer named Fool Killer, helped provide a very unsatisfactory ending to the Omega the Unknown series, and run afoul of an incredibly problematic villain named Mandrill, who looked like an anthropomorphic baboon and controlled women with his mutant pheromones. Also, the government had been investigating Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, for gross financial malfeasance, and had forbidden the affluent avian aficionado from dressing up like a bird and punching people until further notice. Hooray! While Steve was acting as a reluctant receptacle for Patsy's exposition dump on the rocky shores of an uninhabited island off the western coast of Africa, King T'Challa, aka the Black Panther, was stalking his prey. The superheroic sovereign of the technologically advanced isolationist nation of Wakanda had heard that a thief had stolen Wakandan weapons and was selling them to a foreign power. He had tracked the thief to the island and was surprised to find that the buyer of the stolen tech was the Atlantean military. After beating up the crook and taking most of the pre- You know what, fuck it, I'm gonna leave that one in. After beating up the crook and taking most of the buyers as his prisoners, the panther hopped in a flying submarine car and followed the Atlanteans who had fled the scene of the attempted contraband purchase. The Atlantean military soon seized T'Challa's vehicle and the monochromatic monarch was brought before Neymar so that the two prodigiously powered potentates could work things out. It didn't go great. Namor was pissed that his warlords had arranged to buy stolen arms, but was even more pissed that Black Panther had taken said warlord's prisoner and invaded his aquatic kingdom. He demanded that the prisoners be turned over to him that he might punish them himself. T'Challa wasn't crazy about that plan and attempted to negotiate. Unfortunately, the Crown Prince of Abslantis viewed the very concept of compromise as a personal affront, and a diplomatic Donnybrook soon broke out. The regal roughhousing roused a sleeping the Hulk, who freaked out and smashed his way free of the domed underwater city. In the ensuing kerfuffle, Black Panther escaped, but was knocked unconscious in the process. The good news was, the damp do-gooder was soon picked up by a Wakandan submarine that was patrolling the area. The less good news was that when the Hulk launched himself from Atlantis, Wakanda's military assumed that the projectile zooming from the fabled city represented a missile attack on their own kingdom, and responded in kind, launching a full-out nuclear assault on the unsuspecting Deep Sea Dominion. When D'Challa woke up, he placed an embarrassed FaceTime call to his recent aquatic adversary, informing Namor of the atomic whoopsie his subordinates had authorized during his slumber. With Black Panther's help, the Submariner managed to divert the missile's path so that it crashed into the uninhabited island where the entire international incident had been initiated. Disaster had been averted, but diplomatic relations between the two fictional nations involved had never been more tense. God zooks! How will the world react to learning that Wakanda is a nuclear power? Will Kyle actually heed the government's warning and refrain from bird-themed superheroics? And was it a good idea to try to write a comic book synopsis on Election Day? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Poorly? Amazingly, for the second issue in a row, yes. And... Not really, no. It was a welcome distraction, but it was way too hard to try to focus. I much more highly recommend my other distraction technique, which was stress-eating discount Halloween candy and half-watching the episodes of Heartland that Lisa had on the TV. Hellcat stands on a rooftop overlooking the Wakandan Consulate in Manhattan. 
She has some information that she'd like to share with her fellow feline fetishist, the Black Panther, and figures that he's probably in there. Because apparently nobody in the Marvel Universe knows how to use a goddamn telephone, Patsy reckons she has no choice but to bust into the heavily guarded building unannounced and surprise the visiting foreign dignitary. Fair enough. The nobly stringent security has been stepped up a notch because the building is surrounded by angry protesters who aren't too stoked that Wakanda has just detonated a nuclear weapon. A S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, who I guess is part of the beefed-up security detail, spots Patty and asks her why she's up there. She tries to show him her old Avengers ID card, but the guy is like, Nice try, lady, but this card's expired. Now what are you really doing up here? Patsy is like, Punching S.H.I.E.L.D. guys, I guess. Then she punches the S.H.I.E.L.D. guy. Hooray! Hellcat uses her cat claw grappling hook thingy to swing in through a surprised Black Panther's window. Luckily, the startled Super Sovereign recognizes Patsy from his days as an Avenger and invites her in. She informs T'Challa that the Defenders have recently found information which leads them to believe that their shitty problematic adversary, the Mandrill, has gotten his hands on some stolen Wakandan tech. They decide to head over to Steve's Sanctum Sanctimonious to talk things over with the whole gang. A few blocks away in his lawyer's fancy office, Kyle Richmond watches TV and complains about the fact that he feels useless now that he's not allowed to superhero anymore. Aw, cheer up, Kyle. If it makes you feel any better, you were pretty useless when you were allowed to superhero, too. Meanwhile, in Atlantis, Namor has his staff hard at work trying to figure out where his old frenemy the Hulk landed after launching himself out of the palace. Turns out that the big green guy is floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The abdominally adroit Atlantean king hops in his royal hovercraft and zooms over to the green goliath to see if he wants a ride. At first, Hulk is like, Fuck that! Hulk doesn't want to go to Atlantis! Last time Hulk was there, they tried to feed Hulk a fish with an apple in its mouth. That place is weird. Hulk will just swim the 3,000 miles home. Namor is surprisingly accommodating and tells the Emerald Avenger that if he doesn't want to go to Atlantis, he'll take him any place else he wants to go instead. Hulk takes the irascible amphibian adventurer up on his offer, and perhaps surprisingly asks Namor to plot a course for the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Huh. Thought for sure the Hulk would want to make a beeline for the Bean Factory. Missed opportunity, big guy. At some point during the course of the flight, a drowsy the Hulk reverts back to his Bruce Banner alter ego. When they arrive in New York, Namor carries the partially purple-panted physicist into the sanctum, and is shocked to see the defenders palling around with his recent adversary, the Black Panther. The enraged Atlantean is like, What the fuck, guys? This asshole tried to blow up my whole kingdom! Black Panther is like, You're still mad about that? That was a whole day ago. Get over it! Steve pops in from the other room and is like, Gentlemen, I don't want to hear about who launched nuclear weapons and who. Whom? It's whom, isn't it? The point is, whatever happened yesterday didn't directly involve me, so it couldn't have been that important. Now, you're both totalitarian rulers of fictional nations who routinely abandon your constituents to go have your little adventures, so why don't you just do whatever the royal equivalent of shaking hands is so that I can go back to napping in the other room? Namor is like, One, I'm pretty sure that declaring war on one another is the royal version of shaking hands, and B, Fuck you, Steve! And with that, the avenging scion of Atlantis fucks off back to his undersea castle. Bye, Namor!
Black Panther is like, well, that was awkward. But Patsy is like, eh, I wouldn't worry about it. If I had a nickel for every time that guy stormed off angrily, I could, well, have engineers build me a fancy bird suit and start buying adamantium barca loungers for no goddamn reason. Now, let's get back to work. After pooling their resources, the gang pieces together that it looks as though the Mandrill is scheduled to receive a shipment of stolen Wakandan weapons that evening. Black Panther, Clea, Val, and Patsy head out to New Jersey to snoop around the purported location of the illicit transaction. Steve and Bruce Banner hang back in the sanctum and take naps. That's some quality division of labor there, guys. The away team of defenders rolls up on the rural hamlet of Frenchtown, New Jersey, and starts poking around. Within a few minutes of their arrival, a broken-down old propeller plane lands. At first, the gang takes this as a sign that they might be on the wrong track. But soon they are disabused of this notion, as a gang of attractive young women dressed in the same purple and blue outfits that were worn by Mandrill's previous group of hench people, Femforce, begins to unload boxes from the plane. Convinced that this sartorial similarity is too uncanny to be mere coincidence, the defenders attack. Patsy and Clea make short work of the women, while Val flies around on her pegasus and hacks at the plane with her magic sword. Good for her! Black Panther boards the plane and begins examining its remaining cargo, but is surprised when robot arms shoot out of the crates and hold him in place. In his defense, that is pretty surprising. Once the robo-boxes have secured the Super King as their prisoner, they zap him unconscious, and the plane takes off, discarding its wings and propellers as it does so, revealing itself to be a high-tech jet-propelled vehicle. Just as the futuristic Monarch Snatcher is about to take to the sky, Patsy leaps aboard. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because despite Hellcat's heroics, she's unable to free her fellow cat-themed crime fighter from his bonds. A difficult-to-forget face appears on the viewscreen in the cockpit. The visage in question is covered in fur and sports a distinctive blue and red nose. Is it a patriotic werewolf clown? Sadly, it is not. It's the Mandrill. Well, shit. Mandrill is surprised to see Patsy, but pretty stoked about it. He'd intended to blow up the Black Panther so that the meddlesome monarch wouldn't hinder the perfidious, presumably purple-assed primate's access to the stolen Wakandan technology. But the fact that he gets to surprise murder, one of the defenders who helped foil his previous scheme, is an added bonus for the Mandrill. He gleefully informs Patsy that the vehicle she is riding in is programmed to crash into a propane storage facility, and that any interference or attempt to free T'Challa from his imprisonment will detonate a bomb that the robot arms have affixed to the sedated Sovereign's chest. Bummer. Val hacks away at the outside of the speeding death trap, but to little avail. Desperate and unsure how to proceed, Clea places an emergency telepathic distress call to Stephen Strange. Reluctantly, Steve answers. Once Clea fills him in on the situation, the supercilious sorcerer mystically slaps Bruce Banner into hulkiness, and the two heroes head to New Jersey. When they arrive on the scene, Hulk leaps into the sky and punches the shit out of the deadly projectile, diverting it from its projected path and sending it careening into the river. Hooray! Steve dives alongside the plunging missile, but is unable to breach the hull from the outside. Fortunately, Steve is on the forefront of the mystical equivalent of the internet. 
the hours of research he put in learning how to look up videos of sexy flame ghosts, finally pays dividends as the astrally adept mage manages to quickly find a magic YouTube video about how to disarm a futuristic bomb. Steve psychically projects the mystic walkthrough into Patsy's brain. Armed with this new knowledge, the crime-fighting kitty cat cosplayer frees the other crime-fighting kitty cat cosplayer from his restraints, and the two swim to safety. Hooray! Soon after they make it to the shore, the bomb explodes behind them. So, maybe that sorceress bomb disarming video wasn't so great after all. See, that's why it's important to read the tips at the end of online recipes. Saves you a lot of trouble. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. My body is sore, but I, I feel like it was a productive weekend so far. Yeah, you're in the process of moving. That's true. Man, that is never one of my favorite activities, and I would imagine during a pandemic it's significantly less fun. Yeah, like all things, I think it takes a little bit longer, but um, that's okay. Well, I'm glad it's going well for you. I don't have the same excuse that you do, but I'm also very tired. I think it's just a tired time of year. I'm worried <laughs> that my brain might be broken and... The events of this year have just voided the warranty on it, so we'll see how this goes. Oh man, that's going to be awfully expensive if your warranty is voided. I know, I know. I gotta take it back to the dealership. Yeah, get the timing belt tightened. Yeah, that thing's all out of whack. Yep. Well, Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, it was it was kind of a nice break from the Titans that. I, I don't know. The, the Brother Blood storyline is kind of stressing me out. I get it. And uh, this is just... It just has a somewhat lighter feel to it. With the exception, I guess, of some of the protest stuff that was going on where the people are trying to boycott Wakanda. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It was, it was a fun comic, though. I enjoyed it. I agree. It was for the most part. I felt like it did have kind of a lighter touch. I think part of that is due to... Much of the narrative seems to be running through Patsy. It seems like she is at least the de facto team leader at this point, which is kind of a fun change. And I liked that for the most part. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I felt like the art was very good. There's a new inker, Jim Mooney, who I think did a good job with it. There was a coloration problem in my issue. I'm not sure if that was all the issues, but... Everything was just a little bit off-center for the coloring, so people seemed colored outside the lines, and everything just seemed a little bit muddy and blurry in a way that I found really distracting while I was reading it. Mm. I didn't notice that so much in the copy that I had. Oh, well, good. I'm glad that you didn't have to deal with that, because there were a number of instances in which it kind of took me out of the book. I feel like if the story was a little bit stronger, if the writing was stronger, it would be enough to carry that through. But I've been kind of counting on the last few issues on the art carrying the story through. And because of that slight distraction, it wasn't really able to do that as much as I would have liked. Yeah, I, I did feel 
that one of the things that detracted from the flow a little bit was the density of the text mm-hmm. to art, like the text to art ratio. I don't know what if there's like a golden mean for that <laughs> in comics, but this was a little bit uh, texty. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Had a touch of the Roy Thomas to it, but without even the flowery prose behind that. But there was a lot of fun stuff that was happening in it, and I was glad to see Black Panther certainly again. Less glad to see Mandrill again. My notes for that are fucking Mandrill. Well, shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm often and we've talked about this kind of ad nauseum, but I'm often frustrated by the just pointlessly complicated plots that the criminals go through. Yeah. But this one I kind of enjoyed where (laughs) it's like, I'm going to make this super high tech airplane. That's basically just booby trapped to capture T'Challa so that I can then fly it into a like a gasoline refinery. Yeah, there didn't really seem to be a lot of reason not to just use a regular airplane for this. There was a lot of complicated plotting, both on the part of the villain and on the part of Ed Hannigan in this. One of the ways that that was the most glaring to me was bringing in Steve and the Hulk to save the day at the end seemed completely unnecessary and redundant where you have Clea and Valkyrie there, where Valkyrie is already there serving as your powerhouse character who's very physically strong, and Clea can do the mystical stuff, and neither one of them's really doing much at that point. But just like the last time we saw a predominantly female Defenders lineup, they have to call backups because they are failing miserably without their male counterparts. And I don't think that's an intentional choice necessarily on the part of the writing, but it was something that I'm like, you keep doing this. It's now a trend. This is the second time you've had an all-female lineup, and both times they have failed and had to call in men to save the day at the end. Mm -hmm. I guess the silver lining is we get to see Hulk punch an airplane out of the sky. I do like to see the Hulk punch an airplane. That's nice. But I feel like it, again, kind of needlessly complicated things at the end, especially where you see, for the most part, Hulk was just sitting on the sidelines at the end after punching the airplane. I feel like that could have been pretty easily accomplished by having Val punch the tiller or something. If you did want to have it be Steve and the Hulk that end up saving the day, there are ways that you could have even made that make more sense in the story. Like, have them be like, you guys better come too because we're worried that Mandrill might be here and can use his powers on us or something, you know? But you Mm -hmm. don't even get that. It's just, oh, we're not powerful enough. Clay is in her first outing. I was so happy for her. I didn't know if she was actually going to be considered part of the team, but she definitely is. In fact... She is considered main roster, I think, for the first time, where Mm -hmm. in the opening thing it says, At last, the Black Panther, monarch of the African wonderland Wakanda, joins forces with the vibrant Valkyrie, the high-flying Hellcat, and the mystic maiden Clea, the dynamic defenders. And then you get also starring Doctor Strange and the Submariner and Incredible Hulk. I'm like, oh, so that's the lineup. Everybody else is a special guest right now. Which I was really excited about, but again, kind of fell short at the end. Yeah, not, I guess, unfortunately, surprisingly, Mm. because that's what we've seen to date. But um, yeah, I also was pleased to see Clea take on a bigger role. 
I do want to get back to something that you mentioned briefly earlier, which is... <laughs> we get a shitload of protest signs in this issue. That we do. I was happy to see them. They didn't make a ton of sense or make the protesters look particularly good. Did you have a favorite protest sign? I don't know if favorite is the right word, but I guess I was intrigued by the connection where they said uh, Black Khomeini in Africa. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would. My attention was drawn to that as well, at least partly because they misspelled Khomeini. And I'm not sure if that was just a matter of kerning, like they ran out of space on the sign and were like, people get the idea. But what they had it was as Khomeini, which made me think that it was like a little Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> yeah, I googled it because I was like, that doesn't, <laughs> is that really <laughs> how that works? Nope. Yeah, that one didn't make a ton of sense. Boycott Wakanda was also an interesting sentiment to express when Wakanda is explicitly an isolationist nation, <laughs> where it's like, boycott what? They're not trading with us. That's a useless sign. I, I was very frustrated with a lot of these protesters. I understand certainly being upset at the idea of there almost being a nuclear war, but it didn't necessarily ring true for me, this depiction of the protesters. Yeah. And I mean, there is also that kind of double standard, right? Where there's another person that's got a sign that says no nukes in Africa. Right. So it's like, well, it's it's cool if we have them because we're, you know, a responsible developed nation, but this whole continent doesn't get him. Yeah, I agree. And it was not made clear whether that was the stance that the comic book is taking as well. That's one of the problems I have with this is like, it's difficult to know exactly where the narrative stands on the protesters. Like, are we supposed to side with them or think they have reasonable points? Or is it making fun of them? Is that why their sign is misspelled? Is that why they're having nonsensical arguments. And it was just never completely clear. But that being said, I was stoked to have some picket signs because, you know, I get to use the old uh, air horn. Yeah. That was a good time. That's always fun. I also, though, like just along the lines of Wakanda, like it's basically still kind of a secret nation. Right. As, as I understand it. But yet they have a giant consulate in Manhattan <laughs> that takes up half a block. Yeah, that is an interesting choice. I mean, they're a very wealthy nation, so it's possible that, yes, they have that consulate, but nobody really paid attention or knew what it was for. My thinking had been previously people knew about the nation of Wakanda. I mean, it's not at least a total secret because Black Panther had been an Avenger for a while at this point. I think he was no longer an Avenger, but he was for about 10 years or so. So. The Avengers are celebrities. They knew that he was a king. But I think maybe just nobody paid attention. But we did see in the last issue, he was like, oh, the first time many people will have heard of this nation is with us dropping this nuclear weapon on ourselves, I guess. Because <laughs> mm. it was a rocky island off the coast of Wakanda that was uninhabited that actually got blown up. But the geopolitical standing of Wakanda is kind of murky. At this point, mm -hmm. they can afford a pretty tight and um, color coded security detail. I thought that was just New York cops. No. Oh, I thought that 
the like orange unit and blue unit stuff were like the consulate security. It's right after the scene where all it shows all the protesters with the picket signs and there's a dude on the roof that uh, Patsy has a run in with. Oh, that's a shield guy that Patsy has a run in with. I didn't know he was a shield guy. When she first clashes with him, she tries to show him her Avengers security card, which she has a ton of extras of, which I think is a nice touch, even though it's expired. And he's like, S.H.I.E.L.D. has a list of current legal status Avengers and you're not on it. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure he's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. And then the guys that come up to the room after she busts into the room seem to be New York cops, but they are wearing weird outfits that have like hoodies on under their riding helmets. Yeah, uh, it's old timey riot cop gear. Yeah, like I feel like if they were specifically a Wakandan security detail, they wouldn't be starstruck or surprised at meeting a king. No, those guys are regular cops for sure. But that's funny. That's I know we don't have timestamps here, but I was like, man, those guys are being way too polite for <laughs> like what I'm used to seeing, at least in the media of late. Yeah, it's interesting because there would be a lot of timestamps in this. There are a number of references to the Iran hostage situation that would have been ongoing at the time this comic book came out. And it was weird seeing that referenced in a comic book. I feel like it's such a contemporary and serious reference in an otherwise goofy book that it must have been jarring at the time, I would think. Mm -hmm. I love that Kyle's attorney still has just the TV on all the time and they're watching Wild Kingdom <laughs> like while they're doing his legal paperwork. I loved that too. You mentioned it last time and I had posited that that was maybe at Kyle's insistence. But you see, he is not really running the show in this. The attorney is definitely like, ah, I get bored talking to you. You're obnoxious. I'm going to have Marlon Perkins on in the background. And then when they interrupted for a special bulletin, Kyle still wants to talk about his business, which presumably he is paying his lawyer to conduct for him. And the lawyer says, shut up. I want to hear this. Yeah, it's hilarious. Pipe down, Kyle. We're tired of your shit. I also love in that scene, Kyle gets up to stretch. He just says, oh, stiff. <laughs> there is a fair amount of old radio show style self-narration happening in this comic book. That is one example of it. When Namor lands to drop Bruce Banner off at the Sanctum, there's another example where he just gives a little speech to himself. Where he's like, ah, there's Valkyrie's winged steed Aragorn. The other defenders must be here as well. I shall go in and greet them. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that level of self-narration. It does come across as cheesy and unnecessary in general, but it also, I think, makes sense for Namor's character. He is so much the protagonist in his own book at all times that the idea of him having a running self-narration, I think, makes a fair amount of sense. Man, he is at his name Moriest in this story. I don't think he's all that wrong. Uh, I am so annoyed with his attitude. I am not. <laughs> I get it. I mean, if I came over to your house and I mean, I'm universally beloved, so it's difficult for me to imagine this. But if my enemy, if I had an enemy and you were hanging out with him, I would totally be like, what the fuck? And none of my enemies, I I'm thinking it'd probably be like uh, 
I don't know, the kid who minorly bullied me in middle school. I would still be pissed if I came over and Matt was in your kitchen. (laughs) And I'd be like, Corey, what the fuck? And he didn't try to blow up my country with nuclear weapons yesterday. And I would just have to come out and say, cease this commotion. (laughs) Everybody calm down. I get it from Namor's perspective, honestly. I'm just still mad at him about the last interaction that he and T'Challa had. I, I still maintain that he was the one being extremely unreasonable in that situation. And I gotta say, and this is the only time I'm gonna say this maybe ever, but both sides, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially rereading that issue to do the synopsis, I was maybe even more coming down on the side of T'Challa fucked up big time in that too. And he even ends the issue by saying, man, I fucked up big time. So I don't think Namor is wrong to feel betrayed by Steve. They just fought a war against the underpants monster together traveled the realms, he turned into an owl for the guy, and he comes over to what he thinks is his friend's house, and a guy who tried to blow up his country is in the dude's kitchen. I would at least want an explanation, and I would be pissed, and I understand why he is. Yeah, but he doesn't allow any room for the explanation. Well, I think part of that is due to Steve being bad with people. (laughs) I sided with no one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think you get to stay neutral in that matter. That guy's supposed to be your friend. I don't know. I get that they have a reason for seeking out Black Panther or Patsy does, but we don't really know what it is. Like, we, it hadn't really been set up that there was a connection between Wakandan technology and Mandrill before. This is new shit that gets dumped in. So Namor's coming into that as cold as we are. And I don't know. I would have stormed out of there as well. I don't think you would have. I would. If I come over to your house and Patrick Beverly is in there, oh, I'm just leaving. Who's that? He plays for the LA Clippers, and he was very unfair to Damian Lillard and razzed him about missing some free throws late in a game. And so I don't want you hanging out with him, Corey. And if I come over and he's there, oh man, we'll have words. Okay, I'm going to start making a list. That's the... Childhood bully, the basketball uh-huh. man. Yep. Those, those are really just the two. As I said, I'm universally beloved. Probably some geese. <laughs> uh, that guy who left us a one-star review. <laughs> oh, man, that would be such a shitty party you're throwing, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't like this party either. Did you know that ordinary pot-running operations use cheap old airplanes? I do now, especially the ones that take place in... Frenchtown, New Jersey. Now, do you think that's the actual name of the town, or is it just a place where people go to make out? Oh, I thought it was the name of the town. It doesn't really look like a make-out destination. <laughs> well, that's the great thing about, uh, about it. It's nice and secluded. Uh. Great for make-outs. No, I think you're probably right. I looked it up. Frenchtown, New Jersey is, in fact, a real town that, as near as I can tell, is not known for its makeouts. But it currently has a population of, like, I think a little over a thousand. So back then, I would imagine significantly smaller. And it's got to be something that one of them knew someone from there. 
Like, it's such a specific reference. Maybe that is where Hannigan was getting his pot back then. <laughs> Maybe so. If so, they must have been pissed when they read that. Mm-hmm. When Steve gets the psychic call from Clay to come pull everybody's fat out of the fryer, he had been doing some research into ancient Tibetan chants. Mm. His quote is, Amazing, this oriental manuscript was written 800 years before the birth of Buddha, yet the chant, Namyona Renge Kyo, is clearly, huh? I kept reading and rereading that phrase to see if it was like some more backwards coded objectivist shit. It turns out it's a real Buddhist chant. Oh, no shit. I did not see that coming. I I was honestly floored. I was like, is that like, who is John Galt backwards? And I kept trying to decode it because fucking Hannigan has me trained to do that. Yeah, that's a that's a kind of astounding amount of, I guess, research that went into the scene. I would be very surprised if it was research. My guess is it's just a thing that he knew. And he's like, oh, throw that in there. Hannigan doesn't strike me so much as a research guy as a, huh. Here's a fun fact I just read off a diner menu or something. Into the stew. The scene that follows that when uh, right after Steve gets the call and Bruce Banner is like, hey, man, what's going on? I think it's supposed to be like the lighting in the scene. But uh, Banner looks really strange. Like there's his face is kind of shadowy, but in such a way that makes it appear as though he's got kind of like a Tom Selleck mustache and a soul patch, but also like really sunken eyes. <laughs> Let me take a look at that. Oh, yeah. But I, at first I was like, dude, who's who's the heroin addict that Steve has squirreled away in his library? It's like, oh, no, that's Bruce. Well, I mean, I don't know. Getting a magic lobotomy has probably got to take it out of you. I would probably be a little sallow-eyed, too. Mm-hmm. But you're right. He looked, He does not look like he's doing well. Yeah. And when did he grow that mustache? Yeah, I think that's just some bad shadows at that point. But, uh... Like, maybe the Bruce Banner transformation went too far in the other direction. You know, like, he bulks up to turn into the Hulk, but then when he turned back into Bruce Banner, he just kept going a little too far. There was an interesting scene when Patsy breaks into the consulate where the Black Panther is hanging out with his butler-slash-secret head of security guy, who... I was sure once we got that as his job description was like, oh, this guy's going to turn out to be evil. I looked into it. He's not. He's just a regular butler slash chief of security. Seems like that is a description of an evil job, though. That is the weirdest. What do you call it? Like a like a job title that has like two jobs in it. That is the weirdest combination of jobs. Unless he's like undercover, like undercover boss. (laughs) I guess. That's got to suck for him, though, because it'd be like if like, OK, you're secretary of state and my shine guy, but everybody's just going to think you're the shine guy. Cool. Do you think maybe the guy's just as butler and Black Panther just wants to make him feel important? Maybe. Seems like like an OK thing to do. Yeah, for the most part. Although if that is the case, then he's probably causing the guy a fairly unnecessary amount of stress. But. Regardless, when Patsy breaks in, the cops show up and they're like, hey, there's nothing serious going on now, is there? And Black Panther's answer is like, 
Oh, no, no, you guys are doing a great job with security. That's just a stalker. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, he's pretty casual about it. Yeah, it's like, that's just a overly enthusiastic fan who broke into my house through the window. Yeah, we'll take care of that. If that's what your cover story is, just say, ah, oh, nah, it's nothing, don't worry about it. Like, don't go the added mile of being like, hey, it's just a stalker who broke in, unless he wants to let them know that they're doing a bad job. Maybe that's mm -hmm. like a cultural thing. Like, well, I don't want to come out and say you guys fucked up, but uh, I'll just do a little passive-aggressive thing at you. Mm. But the thing that struck me most about that scene is the decor in the Wakandan consulate. Because you see a few carved masks on the wall, but one of them sure looks like Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, it does. Did Black Panther hunt and skin Spider-Man? It's pretty close, but it's like pretty fuzzy and blurry. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about with much of the coloring in, in my issue, at least, is offset so that people look like they're colored outside the lines. That is one instance of that, which I think made it look more like Spider-Man to me. With the protesters, you see it a lot, too. And the way it manifests with them is in the crowd scene, all of the black characters, the color for their hair starts a little bit below their hairline. There's just like, it looks like they're wearing either a blue headband or a tiara, like a Luke Cage style tiara. Hmm. And it made me wonder if it's like, is that a specific type of like comic artist racism where they're like, oh, all black people wear tiaras. Is that like a very <laughs> specific stereotype? That is exclusive to the Marvel Universe? I don't know, but I would guess probably not. Hmm. Well, that's good. We also see that for the second issue in a row, Black Panther gets trapped by robot arms that come out and snake him out of nowhere. The first time it was his flying submarine car gets snaked by robot arms that shoot out of nowhere. And this time it's the man himself gets uh, trapped by the robot arms. Do you think that's like his kryptonite? Gosh, it could be. I mean, it's happened a couple times. Yeah. He's got to be like really nervous at, I don't know, gas stations and other places where there's things on long hoses. <laughs> Wait, where are you? Okay, hoses. I was going to say, where are you getting your gas, Corey? <laughs> like robot arms shoot out of the place? You know what I mean? It's just like a retracting tube. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine that he is probably pretty nervous around any kind of hose situation or at least he should be if that is the case fortunately steve is able to get him out of that mess by psychically projecting a youtube video about how to defuse a bomb into patsy's brain yeah again you know needlessly overcomplicated criminal plot but overcomplicated plots have overcomplicated solutions Fair enough. Yeah, once again, it's Occam's rubber mallet. <laughs> Boing. Just hammering those plot threads back into <laughs> our faces. <laughs> boing, boing. So, there was one other thing that I was very much struck by in this issue. And it came up on the first page, and I have absolutely no explanation for it whatsoever. Do you know what I'm talking about? The little cartoony, googly-eyed drone? Yeah! 
What the fuck is that tiny little cartoon googly-eyed airplane doing appearing in a starburst in the upper right-hand corner of the page? Yeah, I was hoping you had some guidance. <laughs> I got nothing. I feel like maybe it's going to do a PSA where it reminds me to brush my teeth or something. Yeah. Don't take drugs, kids. And remember, always brush right to left and up and down. I'm Planey the Plane saying goodbye and good brushing. I don't like that plane. He sounds kind of condescending. No, he's an asshole. I hate that plane. Planey. Yeah, I'm not going to brush my teeth. That'll learn him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get that either. That was really very strange to me. It seems like it must be a reference to something, or I kept expecting it to come up later as another plot point. And no, nothing. It's just a random, tiny cartoon airplane that appears in a little starburst. You think it could have been, like, foreshadowing of Namor's fish plane thing that drops them off? No, that wouldn't make sense. It doesn't. It looks also totally different from that airplane. I had the same thought. Like, oh, is this like a timeline confusion? Like, is Namor supposed to be arriving at the same time as this happens? But it's not. It's nothing. I don't know why it's there, and it kind of is driving me nuts. Mm. Well, it's probably just an ordinary pot-running operation. <laughs> oh, good call. Taking this party all the way to Frenchtown. <laughs> yep. So before we jump into the minutiae, there was one I was intrigued by the foreshadowing for the next issue where, you know, sometimes they'll give you a teaser of what the, the title or the kind of byline will be. Mm -hmm. And it is the left hand of silence. Yeah. Is that I meant to Google it and I forgot. Is that a literary device or do you know what that's about? I do not know it. I mean, I hear left hand of something. And my mind goes to My Left Hand of Darkness, the Ursula K. Le Guin book, which is a great book. I would be very surprised if the next issue explores those themes. It might just be that it is a reference to it in the way that, like, this issue is called Like a Proud Black Panther, and that is a Rolling Stones lyric. I don't think this issue had anything necessarily to do with the song Midnight Rambler unless I miss some subtext. So it could just be like, uh, something happens with a left hand in this story. So that sounds like a literary thing. I'll call it that. Yeah, I didn't look into it either. My mind immediately goes to the Ursula K. Le Guin book, and that's kind of it. All right. But I don't know. I would be surprised and excited if the next issue explores gender fluidity in a really interesting way, the way that that Ursula K. Le Guin book did. But I'm not going to hold my breath about it. That's fair. I, especially with Mandrel around, don't really see that happening. Oh, man. Shit, maybe it is. I take it back. I don't want that. <laughs> I, I mean, I do want to see that, but I don't want to see Ed Hannigan doing it. Right. Well, actually, before we get into the minutiae, there was one other thing that I wanted to bring up, which is the letters column. Did you get a chance to look at that? Oh, I did not. The letters themselves, there's some okay stuff. It does drive home the fact that there is a 
printing problem with the coloring in this issue because the color for the little text boxes is offset a little bit. But it opens with a box of text that is just fucking word salad from Ed Hannigan. Like, literally. I'm going to read it to you. This is what it says verbatim. Gleetings, yurt people. Strange haircuts. A personal message from a friend. The ultimate store of value. If your appliance should require service at any time during the warranty period, please complete and return this form with defective unit and sales slip. Carl, please disregard that typo. Ahem. Cream Sherry, Joe Duffy, Al Milgram, Margin Release, and of course, more letters from the readers of Defenders. Thank you, Ed Hannigan. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he (laughs) sounds downright presidential. (laughs) Oh no, it's true. Yeah, what is going on there? I have no idea. My assumption is he was told, we need you to write something for this text box. We're a little bit short in the letters column. And he's like, I don't have anything to say. And they said, just write 68 words of something. And he's like, okay. Took a few drinks of something strong and went to work. Yeah, took a little detour to Frenchtown. And (laughs) that's maybe what happened. But yeah, I just wanted to bring it up because I was completely confounded by it. Perhaps whatever inspired that also inspired Brushy the Airplane, who showed up on the first page. That's entirely possible. Well, now that that's out of the way, Rick, would you sing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you want to start us off with? Well, let's get what I know will be a contentious one out of the way. (laughs) Did you have a best and a worst? I did indeed. My best defender, I had Patsy. She took a strong leadership role, which seems to be an odd fit for her, but I kind of appreciate it. And she has a stack of expired Avengers membership IDs back at her house which I think is just such a fun touch. It makes me think of her as being more like Jim Rockford, who had that little printing press for making business cards for various occupations that he kept in his car. And anybody who reminds me of Jim Rockford is automatically going to get the best defender nod. Who did you have? I also had Patsy. I thought she did a great job. Like you mentioned earlier, I think her kind of being the predominant narrative voice, lent a a lightness and sense of humor to the issue that Mm -hmm. was refreshing. Um, Also, she just did a great job. She rescued Black Panther, you know, admittedly with some help from Steve, but Mm -hmm. she had the gumption out of everybody to jump on the airplane and made a little pun when she was doing that that we'll talk about when we get to the steel pie. She made the connection between the uh, stolen technology from Wakanda, between Mandrill and and Black Panther, and alerted him to that. So, yeah, overall, great job. Yeah, plus she gave Mandrill the nickname Mandy, which I think is pretty great. Oh, and she kicked that shield guy in the nuts when she was jumping (laughs) off the building. He's like, you have to come with me. And she's like, ah, nope. Good call. Conversely, and here is where I believe there may be some dissension, I had Steve 
for being a bad friend by throwing a party for a goose and Patrick Beverly and that guy who gave us a one-star review and then being a dick when Namor showed up. Um, I don't disagree with that, but I am, I'm just tired of Namor's attitude. I know it is really part and parcel with his character, and for the most part, I really enjoy it. But I don't know. Just this total, like divorcing yourself of any possibility that there may be more to the story and reacting so abruptly to things. It just really, it bugged me in the last issue and it bugged me even more in this one. So thumbs down. It bugged me last issue. It bugged me less this issue because I feel like regardless of the situation that led to it, if a guy who launched nuclear missiles at my house yesterday is over at my friend's house today i'm gonna be pissed about it yeah but that the guy also said called and told you it was an accident and diverted them so i mean that's gonna yeah i'm still pissed i'm sorry don't throw nuclear missiles at my house well namor didn't launch an attack at him the hulk just tried to escape and they launched nuclear missiles at him that they did, but T'Challa didn't do that, and he prevented it. Yeah. All right. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I'm just saying, you keep Patrick Beverly out of your kitchen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. I'll do that. I don't really know who he is, so it's unlikely that he'll be showing up. Okay. And, I mean, you're not having parties, and I'm not going over to your house regardless. And I don't know where to get a goose. Yeah, if honestly, if you are going to have Patrick Beverly and a goose over to your house, now would be the time to do it, because I'm almost certainly not stopping by. Oh, I'm not going to. Goose poop everywhere. Yeah, good point. And the goose might make a mess, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying that uh, Patrick Beverly shits goose shit everywhere he goes. <laughs> um. Okay. But to be fair, he's also a very good defensive player. That makes up for all the goose excrement. Some of it. Well, you touched on this briefly earlier, but what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? I had uh, two main bits that stood out. One... I already mentioned that Steve, he kind of seems like the grouchy roommate that's been woken up by a party. He's like <laughs> parting these curtains and sticking his head out and shouting, cease this commotion. And uh, it just seemed very Stevie and it cracked me up. Yeah, so he follows up the cease this commotion with, this is my home, my haven. I will brook no violent outbursts. I ask that you put your differences aside while you stay here. Yeah, kind of reminded me of. It of course doesn't age well, but uh, Eddie, the Eddie Murphy routine where he's talking about his his dad. Oh yeah, when he's drunk and he's like, "This is my house. It's beautiful." Yeah, exactly. Steve was doing that. Do you think possibly that Namor also was letting the dog shit on the floor and just leaving it there? <laughs> See that? That's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> it's not beautiful, Eddie. It's dog shit beautiful so i like that also the pun or not really pun but the kind of joke that that patsy made where 
she uses her grappling hook thing to jump onto the airplane as it's flying off with T'Challa in her attempt to rescue him. And she shouts, I'm going up with the ship instead of down with the ship. That was cute. That was cute. I had a couple of things that Patsy said on page 22. So Mandrill just popped up on the uh, FaceTime call and says, I took it on myself to help black marketeers by eliminating Black Panther. And Patsy thinks, great. The Mandrill thinks so little of the defenders that knocking me off is just a frill. I can't wait to fix his hash. Which is not a phrase I have heard before. I've heard settle his hash, but fix his hash just makes it sound like she's going to make him some hash. Mm. Which is delicious. Yeah, I had to look that one up myself. I hadn't heard that before. And like everything one looks up on the internet, there are multiple explanations of its etymology. Some may be right, others maybe not. Are many of them filthy? No, no. Okay, good. The two that I found were uh, one, they thought that hash was a derivation of the uh, old word for axe. Oh. So to settle someone's hash meant that basically you're going to go mess them up with an axe. Oh, man. And uh, another one was that there was, I can't remember the spelling, but like a, a derivation of the French word for mess that got anglicized into hash. Oh. So like to... I'm going to go fix this mess. Interesting. Do any of them refer back to Hassan E. Sabah, <laughs> founder of the First Order of Assassins, whose name is believed to be the root for both assassin and hashish? Uh, no, I didn't find that connection, but I was only looking at the first page of the Google results. So, you know, you may be on to something. All right. Well, we can start that right now. Quickly, Corey, to the internet! <laughs> no, no, no. Not, that's not allowed, right? On the show? You're right. I won't start any more conspiracy theories while we're recording. Thank you. I also really just liked it when Kyle said, Ugh! Stiff! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just a little aside, but it cracked me up. Honestly, I've been kind of enjoying these little interludes of Kyle watching events unfold on the TV at his lawyer's office, I would be fine if that just kept going, if that just kept being a running gag for the next 20 or so issues. Sure, yeah. It would be a version of Elf with a Gun that I could really get behind. Ugh. That subplot or whatever it is still pisses me off. Oh, it, it does get revisited still. I'm almost certain. Boo. Agreed. Well, Corey, I have a question I have to put to you. Okay. Behold or be gone. Today's Behold or Be Gone was inspired by Brushy the Cartoon Airplane's first appearance on the uh, opening page of this comic book. And that question is, would you like your vehicle to be sentient? Oh, man, that's a good question. It really depends because, you know, it could be really cool, but I could have the same issue that you get when you interact with any other sentient being that can communicate with humans. Like, you know, they might have a pleasant personality or, or they might be somebody you don't want to be around. So am I basing what that would be like on my relationship, I guess, with my car? 
Ice. Is yeah. Like, I, is it an antagonistic one? or? A... I guess, yeah. I was just looking at it as like a luck of the draw type situation. So I think you would have the same odds that you would with any other sentient being. But I think it would make sense and it would be based more on your relationship with your vehicle. Oh, I would, I would love that because I've always... Met, you remember that scene in Super Troopers where they pulled the Germans over and they're like, do you know why we pulled you over? And he's like, yeah, we were driving way too fast. <laughs> like, I've always kind of imagined my car to have a voice like that. So. <laughs> so you think your car would be like a gregarious German party animal? Yeah, I mean, I would have to be like, hey, stop playing techno music, please. But, you know, as long as I can control... The radio, we're, we're good. Yeah. I, it's one that I'm really torn on because, I mean, like everybody else, I've always wanted an airwolf or a kit, but mm-hmm. there'd be no guarantee that my car would have that kind of personality. Also, like, I just worry about, like, if I get into a fight with it, is it going to drive bad? There's the whole idea of, like, self-driving cars, too. Like, would I still be able to drive it? Or would it insist on taking control? I think I'm going to go with a be gone just because in general, I think I prefer inanimate objects to people. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it depends on the inanimate object, but there are certain functions that I want performed to be just transactional and to not have a social element to them. Mm-hmm. I think it would be stressful for me unless i could guarantee that the vehicle was my best friend you know Mm -hmm. if any time i had to do something rather than just all right we're gonna go it'd be like if every store that you went to your friends worked there there's parts of that that would be nice but there's also times when it's like yeah i just want to get a sandwich you know yeah, I mean, you can do without the running commentary, right? Like, you've know, been hitting the eggnog a little hard there, hub. Uh, you know, because you don't want your car to be like, hey, you were supposed to signal. You're like, I know, but there was nobody, <laughs> literally nobody around. Yeah, I can see that being pretty frustrating. So overall, like I said, I am tempted. I want a fucking Airwolf, but I don't think my 2008 Nissan versus an Airwolf. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a be gone. All right, we got a mixed pair. Does your current car have a name? I call the car Dieter. Ah, well, there you go. even got a German name. I know for years your car was named, you you had a car named Dick Wheeler Uh after the way that a German man you met pronounced the word tequila, right? That's correct, yeah. Which car was that? That was the uh, VW Golf, the black one. Ah. Mm -hmm. Well... Sounds like we've got a behold and a be gone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm honestly just worried that my Versa would sound like brushy. <laughs> you have to make a left-hand turn, dum-dum. I don't remember how brushy sounded. He wasn't that mean. <laughs> ah, and see... It was more condescending. Yeah, he was inspired by the Great Gazoo, but I think I ended up with a little more Steve in there than I intended. Yeah, well, it's understandable. Mm-hmm. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? We already talked about them a little bit, but the uh, orange team leader or whatever. This is 1980, so I guess we are just fresh out of the, the 70s, but he had a really, like, sort of 
disco detective slash Ken doll look about him that I, th- I thought was fun. He did. I don't know how much of that is ascribed to his wardrobe, but he does have definitely a, yeah, uh, Ken doll. I, I just like the phrase disco detective. Giant lapels. Yeah, those are some pretty big lapels. Okay, good point. He's got a burnt burnt sienna maybe suit jacket and like a lime green shirt with an orange tie and that green and orange is just feels very 1970s to me very disco-y yeah i get that i think with his general look the haircut is doing a lot of the heavy lifting Mm -hmm. he really does look very ken doll that and the fact that his poses are a little bit mechanical looking in this i also like that he he sort of when he reports back that patsy's gotten away he stumbles because he's trying to find a way to say like i you know she got past me and the way that the lettering is emphasized it reads as him saying into his cell phone she uh overpowered me <laughs> <laughs> like he has a, some sort of a i don't know like a way of talking that he just emphasizes random words like a bobcat goldthwaite type thing yeah exactly yeah i can see that there was some decent fashion in here i actually really liked Kyle's kind of minimalist sweater. He's wearing a green sweater with a just black stripe that goes over his nipples. Yeah. And uh, it's just kind of a nice look. I think I actually had a shirt a lot like that in the 90s. Oh. Had one big horizontal stripe across the middle. It's a decent look. So I liked that. I liked Omoro. The butler slash head of securities. The color of it changes, but the version of it that I like the best is when he first appears, he has a like purple suit jacket with a bright blue bow tie. And I gotta believe if it's a purple suit jacket, it looks kind of crushed velvet. I think that may just be due to the muddiness of the colors in this. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of your butler dressing in a purple crushed velvet suit jacket with a bow tie it makes me think that somewhere out there there is a very large ventriloquist dummy that he mugged to get that and it's a it's a nice look it is a nice look i don't think the ventriloquist dummy thing is really a selling point for me (laughs) i think those are pretty creepy well yeah and now he's naked too (laughs) oh jesus I, i do like his shirt it's like one of those Uh, I guess like a tuxedo shirt that has uh, a really big line down the the middle to hide the the buttons. Yeah, Omaro is a snappy dresser, whether or not he mugged a giant ventriloquist dummy. And one of the protesters is wearing a red shirt with very wide lapels over a black vest. He also has a very pained expression on his face. His mouth is open in one of those like salbucema style trapezoids, but teeth got drawn into it and it makes him look just really weird. Looks kind of like Jaws from um, the James Bond movies. A little bit. Richard Creel. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see that. I also noticed uh, Kyle's lawyer on, on that same page in the panels above looks kind of like a young or mid-career Antonin Scalia, and I think he's supposed to be wearing a suit jacket, but they forgot to draw the lapels on it, so it just looks like like a tight-fitting fuchsia cardigan. Yeah, it's a weird look. I mean, it suits with the fact that he's telling his client to pipe down because he's trying to watch the Nature Channel. 
Well, it's got cougars. That's exciting. It is exciting. Oh, man, I watched a video on the internet of a runner being chased by a cougar. That sounds horrifying. Yeah, he was like backing up slowly and videotaping it the whole time uh, and just like alternatingly being like, just go away, please go away. And being like, fuck you, cougar, just leave me the fuck alone. But like (laughs) you have to try to maintain eye contact. So he's walking backwards because if they can't see your eyes, then they'll know you're a victim and will jump on you or something. Whoa, really? Yeah. That's why sometimes when you're hiking, you'll get like reflective surfaces on the back of your hat so that they'll think those are your eyes and won't jump on you. I didn't know that. But I don't think you're supposed to necessarily make direct eye contact because then they'll probably also attack you. My guess is it's if, if there's a cougar, it's going to attack you. I think that people shouldn't listen to this show for any sort of wildlife advice because the last one we were talking about was like what kind of stick you need to hit a bear with. And honestly, I was just really winging it. There's a reason, Corey, why we're the nation's number one survivalist podcast. If you see a cougar, make eye contact, but not directly. Yeah. Make sure your hat's shiny and hit a bear with a medium stick. Medium stick that is probably going to break because you don't want to hurt the bear. Uh-huh. With the cougar, yeah, oh, make like wow. flirty eye contact. <laughs> like, like not direct eye contact. You don't want to creep it out, but you want to be a little bit coy. Uh-huh. Like, oh, me? You're stalking me? <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm flattered, but um, I'm going to still play it a little bit aloof. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the best way to survive a cougar attack. And if you want to avoid a bear, rub lime juice on your wrists. <laughs> Did we say that before? That's new advice. Yeah, I don't remember where that one came from. Oh, okay. Oh. That might be if you're going to do a shot of tequila. Maybe the bear will think that you've just done a shot of tequila and therefore are unpredictable. Uh-huh. So that, that's why you should do that one. Okay. Take a shot of tequila, put some lime juice on your wrists. And then flirt with a cougar. Got it. Safety first. Always. What was your favorite panel? I mentioned it several times already, but it's on, I think, maybe page 11, where Steve parts those curtains from, I don't know, his bedroom or something, and says, you're in my house, and so be nice. (laughs) It just cracked me up, because I could, like, just see him being, like, a really annoying roommate or something yeah i think that's good and it's a nice depiction of a very stevie steve in that my favorite panel is on the last page and it's of black panther patsy and steve walking out of the ocean onto the beach where valkyrie clea and the hulk are waiting for them and just the way that the hulk is perched next to a sign that says no swimming permitted while his friends are climbing out of the water it's just, it's a nicely framed shot, and it made me think that Hulk is maybe going to tap that sign as they're getting out. It'd be like, mm-hmm. guys. But yeah, that sign was just, I thought, a nice touch, and I appreciated it. And overall, it's a nicely drawn panel. Again, for me, it is marred slightly by the coloring issue that is in my copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like how Hulk looks kind of slightly bored but he's also got a little smirk on his face indicating yeah maybe he's gonna razz steve for breaking the rules Mm -hmm. 
I had a backup panel too, which I think was on page 12, and it's the one where the plane is landing in Frenchtown, New Jersey, and it's the scene where Black Panther, Patsy, Val, Clea, and Aragorn all kind of like hiding in the bushes and looking out. And it just cracks me up because it really looked to me like Aragorn is photobombing. Like he's just sticking his big horse face in there and kind of being like, hey, and lifting his wings up. <laughs> yeah, man. A Pegasus is not a stealth vehicle. Mm-hmm. It totally looks like he's photobombing them. What was your favorite sound effect? Uh, yeah, this one, hands down, it's, I never knew the sound effect for it before, but it's where you, like, you make a cup with your hand and fill it with water and <laughs> slap it onto somebody's face to wake them up. I think you mean you splap it into somebody's face to wake them That's up. That's exactly what I mean, which is how Hellcat wakes up Black Panther when they're in the airplane in the river. But yeah, splap. Splap was my favorite too, although I did also want to note the noise that it makes when Kyle's lawyer crinkles a piece of paper, which is click. What? Page seven. I don't know why it's doing that. I missed that. That is hilarious. It would make sense that the panel is supposed to be them turning off a TV, but it shows him grabbing a ream of paper in his hand and kind of crushing it a little bit. You can see where everyone's hands are. Nobody's touching either a television or a remote control. And there is the noise click happening. Yeah, that is bizarre. Maybe Kyle's got a sore shoulder. Oh, right. And it's a combination lawyer, chiropractor, television watching meeting. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It's probably the paper crinkling. Maybe it's because the lawyer is so sick of Kyle being like, why can't I go, you know, do whatever I want? And he's just frustrated, so he's like crunching the whole ream of paper in his hand. Or maybe he's saying click and like trying to turn Kyle off. Uh, like, ugh, wish this guy came with a mute button. Mm -hmm. I told you about the worst haircut I ever got, right? Oh man, you must have, but it's, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Wait, was it the like the televangelist? watching place yeah i went into a barber shop that i'd never been to before this is more than 20 years ago i think i was 18 years old and i walk into this place it is a tiny room that more than half of the room is taken up by this giant moose head that is mounted on the wall and the guy sits me down in a chair faces me away from the mirror and stands behind me and has a tv on that he is watching the Trinity Broadcast Network on, like, over-the-top televangelism. And I'm like, okay, this is a little bit weird. It's the middle of the summer, and I see that there are foil letters cut out on the wall above the TV next to the moose that say, he's the reason for the season. What's your excuse? And I have no idea to this day what that means. Eventually, I also notice that he is not, in fact, watching a live broadcast of the Trinity Broadcast Network. He is watching a videotape of it, and there is a row of videotapes of televangelism under the TV that he has lined up. And he is not really paying attention. He doesn't 
wet my head at all before using the clippers or like wash my hair or anything. And it was just such a bad and mystifying haircut. It was actually the last time I paid for a haircut. Ever since then, I've just periodically shaved my own head or just gone at it multi-ball style with a pair of scissors. Wow. That's really the last time you got a haircut? Yeah, it's the last time I've gotten a haircut that I didn't give myself. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It explains some of my terrible haircuts in the past, doesn't it? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's not easy, man. I tried uh, cutting my own hair a few weeks back. Ah, Corey, it's super easy if you do a bad job. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't care. One of my favorite bad haircuts I've given myself was right before I had a show. And my neighbor, Kelly, lived in the apartment next door to me. and. I stopped over and I was kind of nervous and I was like, so I just cut my hair. Does it look okay? And she was honestly trying to be nice. And she was quiet for like probably about 15 seconds and then said, you know, looks really aren't that important. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? What lesson did he take away from this comic? Sure. Yeah, I, I know I, I usually go kind of with a actual Hulk experience in the comic for the rule. But this one, he's, he's taken a page from the star of the comic, uh, Patsy, which is that if you break somebody's window on accident, or I guess just if you break somebody's window, tell them right away and offer to pay for the repairs. It's just the right thing to do. Hmm. I think that's a very good lesson. I had the Hulk learn a lesson from something that happened right near that incident, which is, if you're gonna make a picket sign, take the time to spell correctly. People are gonna be wondering who Co-Mini is. And anyone who is watching the protest, there's gonna be a certain segment of the population who is looking for any excuse to dismiss the message that you're trying to get across. And if you give them an easy one, like misspelling something, it makes it easier for them to not listen to what you have to say. So take a little extra time, do some planning with the kerning, the way you've got the letters spaced, and spell your picket signs correctly. Good rule. Thank you. And thank you, the Hulk, for teaching us those valuable lessons. Now, Corey, I got just one more question I got to ask you. Mm -hmm. In the year of our Lord, 1980, in the month of our Lord, July, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Oh, man. For a change, Steve went out and just did something really nice, really thoughtful for Wong, because he had been putting in a lot of hours and, and just in general doing a great job and kind of burning the candle at both ends. And Steve thought he wanted to do something really special as a, as a thank you. Wong, like many, many people in 1980, had been kind of obsessed with the Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> trying to learn to play it on the guitar, <laughs> getting kicked out of guitar stores, mm. that sort of thing. And so Steve said to himself, well, shoot, let's go get him to uh, see Led Zeppelin. And turns out that they were playing all the way over in Germany. And, uh, 
little suburb of Berlin, Charlottenburg Wilmersdorf, I think. And uh, that was uh, what turned out actually to be the last show for a long time that Led Zeppelin did because tragically their drummer, John Bonham, died later in September, uh, September 25th, and they broke up on December 4th. So he, in fact, did see the, the last time that they would play a full-length concert together, you know, around 27 years later, uh, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, and John Paul Jones got together and played in London 2007. But that show in 1980 was the last time that they had gotten together and, and in fact, played Stairway to Heaven on the set list. And so oh, wow. Long was fortunate enough to um, be part of that experience. Wow, that was very nice of Steve, and I'm sure that's a memory that Wong will always treasure. Mm-hmm. Steve also is, is still very troubled that he doesn't quite understand the meaning of all the lyrics, <laughs> despite extensive research. By extensive research, do you mean he read Lord of the Rings once? Because, I mean, that'll <laughs> do most of it. Yeah, well, not all that glitters is gold. Mm, touche. Well, interestingly enough, the other doings that Wong was doing also relate to Steve and classic rock. or classic rocks <laughs> see july was a special month for steve sort of things had been going pretty well between wong and steve and they'd known each other a very long time at this point and wong knew that steve had a birthday in july i mean technically steve's birthday is in november but the first time steve appeared in a comic book was in july of 19 19- 63. So that makes it his birthday in a weird kind of meta way. And uh, Wong decided that he wanted to get Steve something special. And since July's birthstone is the ruby, Wong got Steve a ruby brooch. He was planning to give it to him in July, but in the late days of June, Steve was going through the closet and found it and was like, oh, I'll just take a look inside of this box. And when he opened it, a lot of memories flashed back of a different ruby. Uh Uh-oh. One that turned Steve into the Red Raja. Mm -hmm. And so when Steve saw this ruby, something in him clicked. Even though it wasn't the mystical ruby, he still found himself wanting to quote Rush lyrics. And so he was like, Modern day warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. And he just started (laughs) flying around town, (laughs) quoting Rush lyrics and wrecking shit. Eventually, Wong came home and was just like, oh, fuck, Steve. Seriously, that was supposed to be a present. That was for next month. Stop going through my things. I guess maybe Ruby wasn't the best choice, but that is not a magic Ruby. You're just doing this. And Steve was eventually calmed down enough that he's like, oh, I, I don't know what came over me. I, uh, that wasn't me. It was the Red Raja. And Wong was like, yeah, okay, Steve, fine. But unfortunately, the damage at that point was done. Rush's reputation had been tarnished, albeit temporarily, but enough so that Canada decided they needed a new national anthem. So on July 1st of 1980, Canada changed their national anthem to Oh Canada. Previously, I don't know if you remember this, but it had been 
Bitor and the Snow Dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they, they were getting a, a bum rep at that point, so uh, Rush had to step back, and now uh, Bitor and the Snow Dog is the unofficial Canadian national anthem. Wow. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing. What a musical month. Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had fun talking about this comic book with you. Likewise. And we will be back next week with another Teen Titans issue. I'm looking forward to that. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can find us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Hey, this is Hub. You know, the guy you were just listening to. But more specifically, this is November 4th Hub, who is about to post this episode. So the me and Corey having a conversation part of this show was recorded a couple of weeks ago. And we go through the usual thing that we do about how you can leave us a review of the show or follow us on social media or donate to the show on Patreon. And you can and should still do all that stuff if you feel like it. But you don't need to do it now. Give yourself a break. It's a really, really weird week, and it's really hard for a lot of people right now. And so, you know... I would much prefer, rather than you following us on social media or leaving us a review, if you just want to go and check in on the people that are around you that you care about, and just let them know you're thinking of them and you hope they're doing okay. And if you're not doing okay, then maybe reach out to somebody who you care about, because probably they care about you. And yeah, just, I don't know, fucking take care of each other, because... This shit is weird. Anyway, let's go back to that starry-eyed optimist hub from a couple of weeks ago so that he can bid you a fond farewell. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Hopefully next time I talk to you guys, things will be marginally less terrifying. Okay, bye! (laughs) And they knew it!